Welcome, I'm Doug Morgan, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense, where we hunt for the truth in the topics you're not supposed to talk about, Christianity and politics. One of the new things that a new pastor or boss has to do when stepping into a new position at a church or a company is to make sure that everyone is in the right seat on the bus, so to speak. What I mean by that is just because someone is in a particular position or role doesn't mean that they should be there. Many churches, for example, place whoever is willing into a position of need just because they are the only one willing. It doesn't mean that they're any good at it. It means that they were just willing. What any good leader will uh, will do is put people in positions that will uh, be good, that they will be good at because, you know, they, they, they'll be good at that role. That's why they're in the position, not for any other reason but the simple fact that they would be good in that role. I help my brother from time to time with his mobile escape room business. The the fun thing about running an escape room is watching the people try to figure out the the escape room puzzles together. Uh, Some groups, they do really well because they take on roles that that they are good at. Some are better at at like math puzzles. uh, Others are are leaders and, and direct people well and and while others are, are better at, at spatial type type things, it can almost be comical to watch a group who, you know, that, that, of, of people that, that don't really know what they're doing and they they're not good at what what they've chosen to do. And they and they struggle as, as a group to solve the room. The problem with DEI is that it places people in positions not based on if they're any good at what is required of that position, they are placed in position because they check a box. They have the, the right skin or they are the desired gender or sexual orientation. From a series of articles from the Daily Wire comes to this. It says billionaires Elon Musk and Mark Cuban got into a social media spat last week over the controversial race-based hiring practice adopted by numerous companies and institutions known as Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, or DEI, or like we like to call it here on the podcast, Discrimination, Inequity, and Exclusion, or DIE. The The argument began uh, Wednesday when Cuban, the former owner of the Dallas Mavericks, of course, uh, NBA team, took the uh, exception to Uh, Musk's definition of DEI after the ex-owner said DEI, this is his quote, DEI is just another word for racism, adding that it discriminates on the basis of race, which is literally the definition of racism, unquote. Hey, he's not wrong, right? Cuban responded to Musk's comments in a lengthy post on X, um, attempting to defend DEI in hiring practices. And in his post, Cuban uh, argued that diversity, equity, and inclusion are all good goals for companies to pursue, writing, quote, having a workforce that is diverse and representative of your stakeholders is good for business, unquote. He added that equity is a core principle of business, putting your employees in a position to succeed. 
Cuban then gave his defense of companies focusing on equity. Quote, great companies create environments that reduce unnecessary stress on their employees. I'm not talking uh, hitting quota or, or getting the, the product out the door stress, which in turn increases productivity. This is what inclusion is all about, Cuban wrote, making all employees, no matter who they are or how they see themselves, feel comfortable in their environment and able to do their jobs. Musk replied to Cuban's post on Thursday, and this is what he wrote. He said, cool. So when should we expect to see a short white Asian woman on the Mavericks? (laughs) I love that. Musk's question caused Cuban to post another lengthy post (laughs) attempting to explain what he meant by his defense of DEI. This is what he said. He says, quote, since this seems to be the most common response, let me address it. DEI does not not mean you don't hire on merit. Yes, it does. Of course you hire based on merit. Diversity means that you expand the pool, the possible pool of candidates as widely as you can. This is what Cuban said. Once you have identified the candidates, you, and this is all in caps, hire the person you believe is the best, unquote. So, so, so what does he mean, expand the pool? I mean, who, who eliminates someone because of race when hiring? Oh, that's right. The DEI does. Okay. Large companies in the U.S. have integrated DEI policies into their hiring practices, causing some companies to to be accused of race and sex discrimination. Uh, Technology company um, International Business Machines, which of course we know as IBM, sponsored paid internship opportunities, one of which barred whites and Asian applicants, and another that was only for women with an exception for men who identify as women. Meanwhile, NASCAR, believe it or not, offered a paid diversity internship that excluded white people from applying, which was first reported by the Daily Wire, of course, and we covered it here on the podcast. And after they reported that, NASCAR actually removed the racial requirement for its internship. But this leads us to to what recently happened at Harvard. And Matt Walsh writes this. He says, there's a documentary called Behind the Curve in which a group of people who think the earth is flat described, uh, decided to test their hypothesis. They spent something like $20,000 on a laser gyroscope and, and, and run some tests. And lo and behold, they learned that the earth, contrary to their assumptions, is in fact round. <laughs> Their response was exactly what you'd expect. At first, they didn't want to believe it, and they started rationalizing away the experiment. Quote, we were taken aback by that, one of the men said. And he also added, we obviously were not willing to accept that. <laughs> the documentary came out a, a few, few years ago, and it was an interesting look at human psychology and how people respond when their own acts debunk their whole worldview, uh, literally their worldview in, in this case with flat earthers, right? <laughs> it, it, it's not an easy thing to experience. It, it, it's one thing 
for someone else to prove you wrong. It's another thing, uh, you know, something else entirely to prove your own ideology and dis- disprove your own ideology and to to reveal how bankrupt and nonsensical it is. It, it's, it's easy to point out and laugh at flat earthers. It is. But this is a phenomenon we're seeing more often these days. In fact, it's been playing out for the whole country over the past few weeks as uh, proponents of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, have witnessed the complete implosion of the president of Harvard University, Claudine Gay. This is a woman who personifies everything DEI stands for. She came from an extremely wealthy background. Her, Her family runs the largest concrete plant in Haiti. She became the first black president of Harvard University, despite publishing only a handful of academic papers. She did it all based on three factors, uh, her skin color, her gender, and her willingness to smear and destroy all of her ideological enemies along the way. And in just a couple of weeks, she's been outed as a complete moron and fraud. She proved She's incapable of answering extremely basic questions in Congress. She also demonstrated that she's incapable of writing anything without ripping off dozens of other papers. Given all this, the cognitive dissonance for for the DEI crowd has to be overwhelming right now. After all, one of the holiest figures in their entire cult just crashed and burned. She's provided irrefutable evidence that DEI rewards mediocrity and destroys every institution that that embraces it. That's, That's difficult for these people to accept, as you can imagine. That's why, in the wake of Gay's resignation as president of Harvard, there hasn't really been a debate over the merits of DEI or anything approaching a reasonable conversation. The word debate suggests that two sides are are presenting their arguments in a clear and rational way. And in this case, what's happening is that anti-DEI side is making co- coherent arguments, while the pro-DEI faction can do nothing but perform and posture and vomit its emotions all over the place. They're actually a lot less reasonable and respectable and coherent than than the flat earthers, <laughs> at, at least the flat earthers uh, and and their their proponents have have, have arguments. Uh, you know, flimsy they may be, but they at least have some arguments that they can try to stand on. But that's still more than you can say for the DEI defenders. The spectacle that aired on CNN over the weekend perfectly captured the the dynamic. It it features two DEI advocates. Lulu Garcia Navarro and uh, Kara Swisher uh, speaking with with two same male counterparts, uh, Rehan Salam and uh, uh, Jonah Goldberg is his name. Uh, really sharp guy, by the way. Uh, in this debate, Goldberg and Salam uh, explain why DEI is a scam used to you know, smuggle leftist ideology under the guise of diversity. The the, the 
the women on the other side of the discussion can only scowl and huff and repeatedly declare how infuriated they are, right? Uh, Lulu Garcia Navarro also interrupts constantly while demanding that the two men on the other side stop interrupting her, which, of course, they never did. Salam makes the reasonable case against DEI and remains logical, level-headed, and perfectly coherent throughout. But once the other side starts interjecting, it just all goes downhill. The whole segment just kind of goes on like this, and and you can probably pull it up on YouTube or whatever. But the, 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 the women just keep shouting about how horrible it is to... Uh, assume that Claudine Gay is, you know, was a DEI hire, even even though Harvard's policy for generations now has been to elevate mediocre candidates on the basis of their their the skin, their color of their skin, and then when it's pointed out that Gay plagiarized more than half of her academic writings, their response is to attack the motivations of the people who uncovered the plagiarism. They have no response but to just simply screech incoherently. As, as with so many other debates uh, on so many other issues, if you, if you knew nothing about the issue and you saw this, this discussion, and you, you would immediately know that the women on the left are just simply full of crap. They, they bring nothing but their emotions to the table. All they have is their, their indignation and their feelings. If you ask them for evidence to prove their assertions, they'll say something about books that have been written, you know, about this. This is why these people get in trouble for plagiarizing so often. They don't know how to provide citations. Books, you know, when you just say, well, books have been written, books are not a citation. And again, all of this would be clear to any observer who had no background knowledge about the subject. If you do, if you do have background knowledge, then it's even more obvious that that the women on the left were just simply full of it. On this issue, like most others, the left has no intellectual leg to stand on. If, if there was any sort of substantive argument to be made for DEI, they would make it. They would produce evidence, for example, that institutions become more effective as they become more diverse and inclusive. They wouldn't just assert this fact, as they always do. They would show it, right? But but they can't. Instead, they simply insist that their position must be true. And, and even if it isn't true, only a bigot would point it out. After all, pointing things out, noticing things, is, of course, the cardinal sin on the left. That appears to be their entire argument when it comes to the entire gay controversy. They won't try to claim that gay didn't plagiarize. It's clear she did, repeatedly. Instead, they appear to be arguing that it was our responsibility to not notice the plagiarism or to ignore it once we did because she's a black woman. This is the total intellectual bankruptcy on the left. And, and, since the left controls all of our powerful institutions, this intellectual bankruptcy lies at the core of all of them. This is the larger problem underlying the gay debacle. The, the real problem with gays plagiarizing paper, papers isn't that they were plagiarized. It's the fact that even if they were original thoughts, 
they were vapid and and dumb and pointless. It 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 used to be it used to be that that Harvard presidents conducted original research on important topics like biochemistry. Now they write useless garbage for a non-existent audience solely to advance themselves. This is part of the the whole cladding gay story you you don't hear much about. But it's far more important than the fact that she lifted several paragraphs from other authors. It, it turns out that even if she hadn't plagiarized a word of her academic writings, Claudine Gay would still be a total fraud. First of all, let's let's just look at the topics of all of her her publications. Every single one of them is about black people or equity in some fashion. That's not an exaggeration. Uh, that was Gay's obsession. Her papers have titles like the effect of black congressional representation on political um, uh, participation and the impact of gender and race on the politics of black women and the effect of economic disparity on black attitudes towards Latinos. This is what passes for research on diversity. It's, it's the least diverse resume you can possibly imagine. It's like, it's like, paging through a random author bio on salon.com or something, right? With, with, a, with a, a sole exclusive focus on, on black issues. Gay shouldn't have been in the running for any job anywhere, but perhaps a, a his, history, a historically black college or something like that. And even there, she would have been totally unqualified. Now, to be fair to Gay, in and of itself, the, the resume isn't necessarily disqualifying. If Gay had been writing truly groundbreaking stuff about gender and race and the politics of, of black women or, or whatever, then you might be inclined to give her a pass on this singular obsession she has on skin color. But the deeper you dig, the worse it gets. It, it, it turns out that Gay wasn't just a race-obsessed grifter who plagiarized whole paragraphs every now and then. In fact, the data behind Gay's papers, the information she was passing off as new and important, was also garbage. Let's zero in on one of the papers that uh, that I mentioned in, in, in just just a few seconds ago. Uh, it's called the effect of black congressional representation on political participation. Now, this paper was published in the American Political Science Review all the way back in 2001. It's an important paper because it's one of the handful of publications that somehow got gay tenure at Stanford University before she moved on to Harvard. The basic idea of this paper is that when black people get elected to Congress, they make white people want to vote less. Somehow, this thesis made sense to Gay and everyone who peer-reviewed this document. To that end, the paper contains all kinds of tables which point to data that supposedly prove this point. That whites just hate voting for black people on the ballot. That's the kind of discovery that would confirm white supremacy is real and white people are bad. And of course, the, the course... Uh, you know, the, the Stanford and, and Harvard, of course, love this kind of stuff. 
it was too good to check even. The problem is that a few decades later, a research named uh, jo Jonathan Palenson, I guess is how you pronounce his last name, uh, de decided to look into the claim anyway. And, and he found that Gay's data contradicts itself. At one point, Gay's data tables show that Missouri Congressman Bill Clay's presence on the ballot didn't have much impact on voter turnout. But elsewhere, Gay's tables show that Bill Clay had a very significant effect on voter turnouts, close to a 17% reduction in turnout. In fact, put aside the fact that it's absurd to claim that Bill Gay, simply because he's black, would make white voters want to stay home on election day or something, the question remains, why do cluttering Gay's tables contradict themselves? There's no clear answer to that question. Pallinson couldn't come up with an explanation. Clyding Gay certainly hasn't offered one. And here's, here's the, the really incriminating detail. Every time researchers have tried to look into this, Gay refuses to provide the underlying data that she used to generate the tables in, in her papers. In 2002, two professors, Michael Heron of Dartmouth, and Kenneth Schatz of Stanford presented a paper that effectively debunked Gay's entire methodology. They included this footnote, quote, we were however unable to scrutinize Gay's results because she would not release her data set to us. That's pretty incriminating. <laughs> but, but here's the real amazing thing. That footnote was removed from the final version of Michael Heron and Kenneth Schott's paper. If you try to find the download and try to download that, that paper online right now, you won't find any mention of Claudine Gay. It's been scrubbed completely. Instead, you'll find the paper. You'll find that Heron and Schott debunked the hypothetical methodology without using Claudine's game, uh, Claudine Gay's name at all. It's almost like someone wanted to protect her for some reason. But writing for Jordan uh, Schlett's uh, substack, Chris Brunette got uh, his hands on the first version of Heron and Schott's takedown, the one that hasn't been censored or redacted in any way. The full uncensored footnote calls Gay's conclusions logically incoherent. It repeatedly calls out Claudine Gay by name, and it includes a lot of technical details which no one, including Claudine Gay, has refuted. This is a far bigger scandal than Claudine Gay lifting some paragraphs here and there. The fact is, her ideas and the data underlying those ideas were useless and fraudulent. Her publications were race-based screeds that that were only ever cited by a handful of academics. And those handful of academics very quickly proved they were complete garbage. And yet, Gay somehow became president of Harvard. Documents criticizing the substance of her scholarship were scrubbed. Even now, she's still making around $900,000 a year as a professor. This is the state of Harvard University and American academia in general.
And this is the key point. Yes, our, our intellectual elites are often thieves and plagiarists. That certainly matters. But what matters more is that they are just as intellectually bankrupt as they are morally bankrupt. They are charlatans. Their power and influence is crumbling by the day. And based on their panic over the past few weeks, we can, pretty, we can be pretty sure that they're aware of it. You see, she was placed and protected in her position as head of Harvard because she was a black woman that discriminated against white people. She was there because of DEI and she promoted it at every level. But these elites, they won't give up. Uh, in fact, academics and, and activists teamed up to create a guide to teaching critical race theory, or CRT, to young children, arguing that kids exhibit racial bias from as young as three years old. Entitled Reflections on Children's Ra Racial Learning, the guide was created by a leftist organization called Embrace Race and shares strategies to effectively inculcate uh, liberal beliefs on, on race among young children. It was written in part by professors at predominant universities such as the University of North Carolina and Wake Forest University uh, who, who, who urged parents to have courageous conversations about race with their toddlers. Quote, children will naturally grow up to be non-racist adults only when they live in a non-racist society. Until then, adults must guide children's anti-racist developments. Unquote. That's what the guide argues. Adding that we have far to go before the U.S. can be considered a non-racist society. It also claims that by about three to four years old, White children generally show clear pro-white biases. Embrace Race, the organization behind the guide, claims that children's racial sensibilities begin to form at infancy and that kids develop racial and other biases by kindergarten. Embrace Race bemoans that most racial learning doesn't take place until you know, middle or high school and exists to provide resources for early and elementary childhood educators. The, the push to teach CRT to young, young children comes amid a, a wider national battle over the ideology and its presence in American schools. The, the, the doctrine has been found in, in K through 12 schools across the country where educators have taught children that America is systemically racist, white people enjoy privilege on account of their race, and that differences in outcome between groups can be attributed to bigotry and discrimination. Yeah, conservative activists and politicians have, have mounted an opposition to the ideology, barring schools from, from teaching it in at least 18 different schools. The guide from Embrace Race addresses the conservative pushback to CRT, characterizing it as a force of racial re, uh, regression that has managed to successfully capture the headlines before saying that the that a, a color-brave countercurrent is gathering momentum. The, the guide also doubles down on its support of CRT, stating that the uh, recent eruptions about 
critical race theory and of course DEI same same thing basically make clear that the work of educators to engage uh, children in honest constructive learning about race and racism is far from over and more vital than ever you see it goes on to offer specific ways in which parents and teachers alike can most effectively push CRT on young children in a in a uh, portion of the report uh, subtitled they're not too young to talk about race the science of early racial learning and activists for, with uh, embrace race argues that racial biases are often formed in the preschool and kindergarten years going on to point um, on a to a, a development chart um, that went viral on, on the organization's social media uh, accounts uh, that claiming that that silence si- silence about race reinforces racism other activists shared their methods um, of inculcating CRT to children. Um, and, and, and one said, oh, one of our approaches is dismantling systemic racism in education is offering summer camps to children in, uh, in rising first through fifth grade. Uh, the, the, this is what the guide reads. In these camps, we have trained anti-racist educators helping children build healthy racial identities by teaming them with race, racism, um, uh, teaching them with uh, about race and racism, uh, its impact on communities, and how to actively resist racism in our communities. An en- entry from uh, Dr. Michael Rizzo, an assistant professor at the University of Illinois, uh, uh, Urbana uh, Champaign, argues that children should be taught about structural racism as part of a broader plan for parents to raise anti-racist children. One portion of the guide, uh, entitled New Directions for Anti-Racism Research, White Children's Understanding of Structural Racism, reads, Research points toward teaching about structural racism as a way to promote more anti-racist worldviews in early childhood. Another entry in the guide called Nurturing Children's Racial Learning uh, One Talk at a Time, was written by academics at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro and Wake Forest University. And the portion urges parents to prepare their children to handle racialized moments and be, uh, and, and be change agents in their environments by having cor- courageous conversations about race. Parents Defending Education, uh, Exner said that the uh, guide was a joke, <laughs> and it is. And that should not be taken seriously by any professional connected with children's education. And, and over the past three years, the proof we have seen is that DEI and CRT initiatives have been complete disasters and do not belong in schools, of course. And, and I would say that they don't belong anywhere, not just in schools, because they are racist at their core. That's what it is. DEI CRT, all the all that stuff, is absolutely racism. It's 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 the very definition of it in many ways, and it has no place in our schools. It has no place in our in our workplaces. It has no place in our homes. And and you may have a different different view on. It. I I would love to hear that. And you can always do that at uncommonsensepodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast is a production of Morganite Communications.